Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. In 1958, Joe Chino opened a coffee shop that would become known as the birthplace of Off-Off-Broadway. The Café Chino became a sanctuary for budding playwrights who wanted a chance to see their productions come to life. And writers like Torek Wilson, Robert Patrick, and Sam Shepard debuted their works there. It was also the place where Bernadette Peters first dazzled audiences in Dame at Sea, which made it to Broadway almost half a century later. Today we speak to Maggie Dominic, a poet, memorist, and Café Chino's unofficial historian, who will share her memories about this landmark venue. Maggie, thank you so much for, for joining us. How are you? I'm fine. I'm happy to be here. I wanted to start by asking, how did you first hear about Joe Chino? I was writing and reading a lot of anti-war poetry, because it was during the Vietnam War, right? And... Um, Someone at some reading suggested that I go to a place called Cafe La Mama, or La Mama, which I did, and um, ended up stage managing a play by Daniel Haben Clark called "Love Me or I'll Kill You." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Ellen and I got along really well, and she said, "I uh, want to introduce you to someone that I think you, you know you'd work well together." So she introduced me to Tom Iron. And that's, that's who she was talking about. And Tom needed a stage manager for a show he was doing. He said, I want to take you over and introduce you to someone over there. So he brought me over to what was the Cafe Chino, and he introduced me to Joe Chino. And that was probably 1965, 1965, I think. And um, Joe asked me my sign, which is what he asked everybody, their astrological sign. And I'm a Cancer, and that was supreme. Um, in the world of astrology for Joe. And uh, I never left. I just worked on one show after another, acted or stage managed or assistant director or worked on the set, whatever, or the props. Um, And I was there until the very end. And you were a writer even before you met Joe, but did you have an interest in, in theater and performance as well? A little bit when I was in Newfoundland. I'm from Newfoundland, and before I, I left Newfoundland, um, the last year I, jo- I joined a, a community theater group, and um, I received the Best Actress Award in Newfoundland. I was a Cockney maid. <laughs> um, I can't remember the name of the play. Separate Tables, maybe? I can't remember the name of the play. Uh, and then when I came to the United States, I went to Pittsburgh to study interior design, um, and I got involved with a summer stock theater at the Red Barn Theater, I think. Um, so I guess it was always a, a bit of an interest in theater, but I didn't really think of it as something that I really wanted to pursue, you know, or spend a lot of time on. But anyway, I really liked, um, liked my experiences there, and I probably did two or three shows. Then I came to New York, and it was because of that person, that poet, whose name I can't remember, I don't even remember how it happened, who introduced me to, to Ellen Stewart, and then she introduced me to Tom Iron, and Tom Iron introduced me to Joe Chino, and my life changed forever for the better. <laughs> yeah. So even, you know, by the time you, you came to Cafe Chino and you said you did all these different jobs, in a way it's like maybe as if all your previous training was kind of leading you to this, right? Because you, exactly. you had a right, you had you had studied interior design. Exactly. You had all the tools to be an exactly. old, yeah. Yeah, and I think that's the way a lot of the people were. 
who were a part of the Chino. They, it, people knew how to do a little bit of everything. You could work on the lights, you could work on the set, you could help direct, you could clean up afterwards or prep beforehand, you know, or act, direct, write. You know, not everyone was a playwright or a director, but everyone could participate in many capacities. Yeah. What was your first meeting with Joe like? Do you remember? I remember he was behind the coffee machine, which was where he always was. I was standing by the kitchen, and he asked me my sign, and he got a big smile on his face when I said cancer. Um, and I think that's probably all he needed to know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't remember much of a conversation in the beginning, but I instantly loved him. I mean, that's the way people were. He just, it, there was everything good about him. And I know that kind of sounds probably uh, Pollyanna-ish, but he was extremely sincere, extremely sincere. And some, we were talking about the Cafe Chino years ago. I was talking with someone, and they said you felt safe when you were there. You know, it was like you, you didn't feel you were going to get hurt or be taken advantage of or mind games, you know, um, you just felt safe there. And that, that was a really good way to sum it up, I think. Hmm. Yeah. In, in, in your memoir, uh, The Queen of Peace Room, you write about how being at the Chino was like being precisely with family. So I, wanna, I, I, I would like you to talk a little bit more about that, about how was that sense for you as someone who was basically on her own in New York City, right? Very much so, yeah. yeah. And, and discovering that you had this family that not only were there for you when you needed emotional support, but you could also create with. I think for me, it was probably the same for everybody. It was a really volatile time in the world. It was the Vietnam War. It was uh, gay rights, civil rights, women's rights. There was like every kind of battle going on right in the country. Um, the draft was happening. People were running away from home. Men were running, you know, guys were running away from home. So there was a lot going on in the city that was very disturbing. Um, a lot of talented people were here with no venue because no one could do Broadway or even off-Broadway. It was too expensive. So you had all these playwrights and actors and designers with no place to, you know, to perform. So the, the Chino, for people who, I said in the Queen of Peace room that it was like receiving a calling. Like we all, Cornelia Street, which is where the Cafe Chino is or was, um, is one block. It's a one block street, which makes it kind of unique in New York. It's, it's like one long block. And to just come to New York and not know anyone, which is the way most people were, to gravitate to that one little block and that one little storefront, that one little door in all of New York City is pretty phenomenal. And then when people found it, uh, there was Joe Chino who basically asked you your sign and had a way of reading people that was very unique. He made, I think he could really cut through any kind of crap. <laughs> and it's okay to say that. <laughs> uh, and... Um, and just see to the essence of a person. He also had a birthday book. So whenever it was your birthday, he would dedicate the play to you or announce that it was your birthday. And it was like little things like that that was very special, right? A playwright would come in, you know, and say, I have a play. And he never read scripts. He just sort of looked at you, sized you up, uh, you know, in his own way. 
uh, and gave you a date, you know, mm -hmm. gave the prayer a date on the calendar. It was a place where people belonged. They felt as if they belonged. And, I, you know, in the Queen of Peace room, I, I have like 18 pages trying to describe the answer to that question. Why did people go there? Why did they feel it was family? It was a pe place where people felt safe. And where you had a, and for for playwrights, it was a place where they had a free theater. Mm. You know, here's the stage, here's your date, do the show. You bring everything in and clean up afterwards. You know that those were the rules. There was no, uh, you didn't get paid for being there, but you also didn't get charged to be there. So you know, I mean, you didn't have to pay to rent the space. People passed the basket after each show. So and then at the end of the week. It was divided up, and so if it was a small cast, you made more money. It was a big cast; it was, you know, not very much money to go around. But it was like, it was like family. You know, you get a free cup of coffee, maybe a pastry. You were given the room to create, and just don't mess around with anybody's head. Mm. You know, it was it was just a, a safe place to be. It, it never struck me until until just now that. The, the Chino then basically was only a few blocks away from Stonewall. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah only yeah. a blocks away, yeah. a few blocks from yeah. Washington yeah. Square Park. Yeah. It was the center of the world it in a way. It was the center of the world on a little block. So when you come up from 6th Avenue to West 4th Street, Cornelius Street is right there, right? So you can look from West 4th Street down Cornelius Street. It's one block. And at the very end of Cornelius Street was where the Cafe Chino was and they were and I'll, this memory is so vivid and it's so vivid for so many other people there was a bank of lights like a strip of lights over the cafe door and they were almost foggy like they weren't neon lights but they um, I'm sure they were a particular kind of light bulb but they were like amber and soft blue and rose and and those colors were at the end of the block so as you walked up the street, you were walking towards that colored light. And it was like a rainbow. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like, a, yeah. Um, and that memory is with a lot of people walking up that one block. That's wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. you were getting together and doing all these wonderful little plays. And the main papers weren't really covering what was going on there at the, at the beginning, right? No. So how was it getting the word of mouth out? How did people learn about the shows and why did they show up? So I contacted three or four playwrights and a, and a reviewer at, who was reviewing at the time. And there were many perspectives. One was, and, and they're all right. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, they're, they're different perspectives, but they're all right because they were all part of a very complicated time. It was a very complicated time. One reason was the venue was a coffee house. One acts, short one acts in a coffee house as opposed to a three-act play in a theater. Um, it was a tiny coffee house that no one had really had ever heard of before, you know. So a critic, a reviewer probably wouldn't want to go there because, the first of all, the editor of the paper more than likely wouldn't send him there or her there. And also, if they did go there, maybe their peers wouldn't go there. Mm. So there was all like, I don't want to go somewhere where nowhere else is going to go. You know, that was probably an aspect of it. No one had heard of it. A lot of people simply hadn't heard of it. And also there really wasn't that much. Uh, I think there were seven newspapers actually at the time, which I was kind of surprised by. 
I don't know what they were, probably Herald Tribune, New York Times for sure, but I don't know what the other four or five were. There wasn't a lot of ink space, if that's the right newspaper term. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? There just wasn't a lot of newspaper space mm -hmm. for reviews, maybe one, you know, a day or something. I talked to this one reviewer, and he said that in night, which is an interesting little fact, uh, in 1962, the New York newspapers went on strike, and that left. This was for, he was writ, write, wrote for the Village Voice, so that gave the Village Voice a lot of clout during those two months, uh, because they were the only newspaper in town, and because they were the Village Voice, they were covering village events, so they took advantage of that, I think, and just did more reviews of plays, and one of the shows they covered during that time, I think, but it was certainly 1962, but it was during that two-month strike, was a review of Rue Garden by Clarice Nelson, directed by Marshall Mason. But that strike was a pivotal aspect of uh, reviews getting in papers and the theater and the Chino being noticed. Then another aspect of it, of the reviewers, etc., was that by not, by not getting reviews, um, there was no negative publicity, <laughs> you know? So if the work being done wasn't that great, no one knew about it. Uh, flip side, if it work was great, no one knew about it either. But in the beginning, it gave people an enormous amount of freedom to do whatever they wanted, however they wanted, uh, because there were no reviewers there, you know? As the cafe became more prominent and more popular, and more people started showing up maybe from Aptown or from other places in the city. Would you say that in any way the shows that were produced changed? Like, did they get tamer, for instance? Did they try to explore content that would be more, quote-unquote, appropriate for everyone? I would, I would have to say probably not. <laughs> that's <laughs> wonderful, that, though. <laughs> I mean, that, that's my first answer without really looking through, you know, like the actual timeline. But my, my guess would be probably not. The only thing I think might have changed is that people who were writing there on a regular basis may have, fine to, I'm sure, fine-tuned their work and just became better at their craft, hmm. which is true for any craftsperson anywhere, right? You know, no matter what you're making, I think they just became better. Right. A after the, the Times announced the Chino as the birthplace of off-off-Broadway, would you say that an idea of going to off-Broadway or Broadway became a part of Cafe Chino life? Or was that, was that never really the goal? At that time, the Cafe Chino was never referred to as birthplace of off-off-Broadway. You know, that, that didn't exist. Oh, wow. That phrase, no. I mean, it was only years and years and years later oh, wow. that that phrase even came into existence. Everybody who worked there wanted to get a bigger audience, a bigger venue. That was slow happening, and it didn't happen with everyone. Off-Broadway happened with a lot. I don't think people would have turned, playwrights would have turned it down, but the cafe itself was a prime venue. To do a show there was really important. When when Dames at Sea happened, and I love that in your book, you Dames at Sea, oh, when Dames yeah. at Sea happened, I love that in your book you describe being called... Uh, 
Joe calling Joe you at your apartment. Joe called me at home. Yeah. I was living in Queens. <laughs> I was living in Queens. I don't remember where. I want to say Sunnyside, but I'm not sure. It was the only time he ever phoned me as far as I was. And he said, <laughs> they're doing the umbrellas for dames at sea, and I won't let anyone touch them till you get here. Come in now. And he hung up. And I didn't know what umbrellas meant because I didn't know the show. I didn't know there were umbrellas <laughs> in it. And he often used um, Ella and Fonaka and his own language that people understood after a while. And I thought maybe umbrellas were a part of that language. Right? <laughs> um, but when I went in, uh, what happened was that there was a song called Raining in My Heart that Bernadette Peters sings. And, and the cast, I think there are six of them, Three, three men, three women, uh, have um, opened up umbrellas. And Joe didn't want opened up umbrellas in the room because they're bad luck, <laughs> I mean, as far as he was concerned. And a lot of people feel that way, I think. So he wanted me to do something with them so that they weren't just umbrellas. So I, had a, I got a box of sequins, and I glued sequins all around the outside of the umbrella so it looked like raindrops for raining in my heart. <laughs> and that was okay. So there are... Um, and what's interesting is that I saw a production of Dames at Sea in Toronto about 10, 15 years ago, and the umbrellas had sequins. And I thought, yay, they're carrying the, you know, maybe it was a coincidence, I don't know, <laughs> but it was a, a nice little touch. I thought, and the, when they did it on Broadway, they didn't have sequins. <laughs> so, so I don't know. How, how did life change in that cafe after Dames at Sea became such a big hit? It, be, it was the most successful, financially successful show that the Chino ever had. It was also probably the longest run in off-off-Broadway history up to that point, for sure, because it, it went from June to August. Wow. It was three months, which is huge, you know. It's huge for any show, mm -hmm. but uh, <laughs> for a, a musical and a little coffee house, it was pretty phenomenal. What happened uh, was really unfortunate. I guess it was a couple of producers who saw the show moved it to off-Broadway, um, took the cast, and which is fine. People want to move up to bigger venues, more recognition, et cetera, et cetera. But they never gave Joe and the director, Robert Dada, who created the magic from a piece of paper with a few words on it, right? They never gave them credit for conceiving the show and producing it, giving it life, which was really uh, heartbreaking because it was such a joyous moment at the cafe in every way. And to have it taken away was one thing, but then to have it taken away and be given no credit for conceiving it was really bad. Dames wouldn't have happened without Joe and Bob Dada, I don't think, uh, because you needed that room for the magic, and you needed Bob Dada who could actually get the meats and meat and potatoes of the show created. But when Bob Dada passed away last year, Bernadette Peters gave a statement to, I think it was Broadway.com, about the importance of that show, hmm. which I thought was really, I mean, she didn't have to do that, but by doing that, she confirmed what I feel and a lot of other people feel, that the Cafe Chino and Bob Dada and Joe Chino were very important to Dames at Sea and to its creation. So I was really happy that she did that. I wanna, I wanna ask you, about the way back back then, you know, you eventually became a memoirist. Did you have a sense that what was going on around you at the Cafe Chino in the 60s was something that would be such an important part of your memoirs eventually? Like, were you taking notes 
thinking maybe in the future I'm going to write a book Absolutely about this Absolutely not. No, no. I don't think anybody did. I don't think anybody realized. It was, uh, in the new book that I'm working on now, I say um, there were there were a lot of rules. There were no rules. We were changing tires as we were, as we were driving. <laughs> I mean, um, you were just creating and working, and I don't think anybody realized that it was going to be a part of an important part of theater history. There was no way to know that, and I wasn't taking notes. I was remembering though, because <laughs> I I remember a lot of it vividly. I, I'm I'm astounded actually at how much I remember. Right. So I'm maybe I I was taking mental notes. I mental guess. Mental notes. Yeah. Because yeah, also you, yeah. you've become kind of like the, you know, like the unofficial official historian for the cafe. The accidental archivist. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's better put. Yeah. Because you also, it was most of the things, most of your archives, right, that helped put the uh, exhibit at the Lincoln Center Public Library in 85. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about saving those objects and why they meant so much to you and why you thought it was important for the New York Public Library to have them? In 1979, I think it was, somewhere in the late 70s, a very, very dear friend and important part of the Cafe Chino, Charles Stanley, was killed in a bus accident. And for whatever reason, his passing really knocked the heart out of me. I mean, it, it was a close friend, but it was also, he was an important part of the Chino. It was just devastating in many ways. Um, and I started to worry about the cafe. I just started to worry about its 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 memory. I don't know. I I can't even word what it was, but it was, his death really had a profound effect on me. And I wrote to um, a photographer named Jim Gossage, who's been a friend since the 1960s. And I asked him if any pictures of the cafe had survived, right? Um, because I was just curious. I was I was curious, but I was also worried about the history of this very special place. I didn't want it to be lost. So I said, I, I wrote to him, because we didn't have email at that point, <laughs> and I said, um, do any pictures, did any pictures survive, did they remain? He answered me by sending me a box with a huge amount of photographs in it of productions at the cafe, Chino itself, La Mama, off-off-Broadway, but hundreds of photographs of the Chino. And I thought, oh my God, this is, this is the history of a very important time, right? And... I don't know how, but I contact, I mean, I don't know, everything that I did was right, mm -hmm. but I have no idea how I knew how to do it. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It was like, it was like someone was guiding me with these steps. Um, I wrote Edward Albee, and because he had helped when there was a big fire at the, at the Chino, he helped with a benefit, he and Katukas helped put a benefit together, which resurrected the, the cafe. So maybe it was because I knew how important he was at, at preserving, right? So I wrote him, he immediately wrote back, and I've lost that correspondence, unfortunately. Uh, but he wrote back and said that he wanted to get me funding so that I could work on this bank of photographs and maybe do something with it. So he tried the Schubert Foundation, he tried all kinds of foundations, but he couldn't get me any kind of funding because I was an individual, mm -hmm. I wasn't an organization. But he had put fire under my wheel, so to speak, to know that I needed to do something with this history. Meantime, I'm staying in touch with Jimmy Gossage, and I know that there are more photographs. So somehow, I contacted the head archivist for New York Public Library for the Performing Arts, and her name was Dorothy Swerdlove. 
I don't know how I made contact with her. That correspondence I still have, <laughs> which is wonderful, because I was living in Woodstock, New York, so it's our, converse, our, our correspondence back and forth. Um, we made an appointment. I came down with, she wanted to see the photographs, see what I had. I came down with a box of photos on the, on the Trailways bus, and um, she immediately knew that it was important and um, gave me a date, and we, I think it was 1985. And this was like maybe 1980 that we were corresponding, but that was the first available date. Um, so for that four or five year period, I worked with the archivist at Lincoln Center putting a show together, putting an exhibition together, the likes of which had never been done before. And I, what I did was I contacted all the Cafe Chino family whose addresses I had or phone numbers I had and asked them to contact everyone that they knew. And everyone who had any piece of the cafe, a poster or a photograph or a um, correspondence or anything, a costume, uh, lent their personal items mm. to the cafe. Two of the archivists with the, with the library recreated the kitchen. And I have photographs that are absolutely phenomenal. Um, with an espresso, the, the espresso machine didn't work, but that didn't <laughs> matter because no one was making coffee in the, uh, in the library. <laughs> but it was a beautiful espresso machine. Th and the way they, um, the way they designed the, the exhibit was they chose some of the main playwrights at the cafe, had a beautiful blow-up picture of, of the writer, and then underneath it there were panels of that playwright's work the scripts, the uh, pieces from the scripts, photographs, uh, flyers, everything contained within a panel. So visually, it was absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Can you name a few of those playwrights for our listeners? Uh, yep. Lanford Wilson, Robert Patrick. I'm going to leave people out, I'm <laughs> sure. Lanford Wilson, Robert Patrick, Robert Dada, H.M. Katukas, John Guare, I think. Robert did I say Robert Dada? Robert Patrick, Robert Hardy, Robert Dada. There are three Roberts. There was the, the, the comic book productions, which is a whole other story. When a show canceled, uh, which was rare, a comic book production was done. And so we have a panel. We had a panel to the comic book productions. Is that, sorry to interrupt you, was yeah. that when you were in an Archie play by any chance? And the Snow White play. <laughs> the, the, fir the first one was Wonder Woman. Oh, and, wow. And... H.M. Harry Katukas played Wonder Woman. <laughs> uh, and then the second one was Snow White, and I was Snow White. And then there was Faust, and then what came after that was Archie and Jughead. Uh, there was a panel to Charles Stanley, who was such a pivotal person, this one I mentioned. Uh, there were panels to the, the Chino itself, to Joe Chino. I contacted his family, and I got Joe's first Holy Communion picture. Oh. Which, you know, so there was like all these precious things that were a part of the cafe that... We'd, we, none of us had ever seen all of it before. So um, it, w it was just breathtakingly beautiful. Posters were there. Ken Burgess, who did the posters for the Cafe Chino, I was in 80% of them, brought, he, he had them. He saved the, the original posters. So he brought them to the, to the library. So around the, around the big gallery, I think it was the Astor Gallery, around the big gallery, you have all these panels with all these playwrights and all their work. You have the cafe kitchen that was recreated in one corner of the library. 
and you have at the very top of everything going around the whole room the posters for all the shows, the original posters. Uh, and then on the other side of the room, opposite the, the kitchen, there was a small stage with the actual costumes from many of the shows. And the dames, the dresses that Bernadette Peters wore in Dames at Sea were there on mannequins. <laughs> a lot of the costumes were there on mannequins. So it was, it was beautiful. The, uh, the, the, uh, the staff, the archival staff was fantastic, the design staff. They created a tape of the music that was played at the cafe. And it was on a loop, so it, it played about for about 30 minutes. So for 30 minutes, as you were standing there looking at all of this, the music from the cafe was playing. What songs did they used to play in that cafe? Uh, Mozart, <laughs> uh, Collis, Gene Autry, Belly Dancing, Billie Holiday. It was like a really cross-section. Christmas songs, <laughs> Madam Butterfly, Loving Spoonful. <laughs> you know. So it was like, a, yeah. But they had pieces of, the, of the, all that music. It was just, it was beautiful. When the show was ready to come down, the library wanted to keep whatever they could for their permanent archives, which was a gift as far as I was concerned, because now the cafe had a home. Mm. All, all these precious photographs and posters and scripts and all the documentation could live on for researchers, right? I would say maybe 50% of what was, because a lot of, some people wanted their things back because it was the only photograph they owned, so they wanted it back, right? But I would say 50% of the material from that exhibition are now in the permanent Lincoln Center archives. The uh, collection is named after you. It's the Maggie Dominic Cappuccino collection, yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if it sounds like a pretty impressive, kind of daunting collection probably for you know for people who who just go in and request it yeah. so what are some of your favorite pieces in the collection that you would suggest people seek out when they have access to it okay the the way i have it set up i and and i'm really happy that the library kept it in the way that i gave it to them i gave it to them in chronological order mm. And I, I put it together in big binders. So I did, the, the, the Chino was there for 10 years, 58 to 68. So I have ten, a binder for each year. And then I have binders for specific things like the big exhibit in 1960, 1985, that has a binder. Um, so, and then what, what the library, things are in archival boxes for preservation reasons. So the things were taken out of the, the binder, but put in, chrono in, a, in a series of boxes chronologically. So if someone is going there to research the Cafe Chino, what I would suggest is they go through it chronologically because each year is so important. And certain years have a lot more material because a lot more happened. Like 65 and 66 were huge. 65, 66, 67 were huge years, there was just so much done. So I would say if you're, if you're seriously researching the cafe, go through the boxes quickly. It won't take that long, a couple of hours. Go through each box quickly and then focus in on what you find most interesting. Op opposite of that is if you're researching a specific time period, it's very easy to do. Because like, say you're, you're researching 1963, 
1967, go there and ask for that particular archival mm -hmm. box. You know, so it's it's easy to research. Right. Yep. What was I don't think in your two memoirs that I've read, I don't think I can recall you writing about your last memory of Joe. My last memory of Joe was well, two of them. Uh, and neither one of them is good. Well, this was after a lot of things had happened for him personally that were really tragic. He was in a very dark space. I mean, really, really dark space. Dames at sea had been taken away. There were unending summonses because he, and that's a whole other story. The city wouldn't give him a license to operate a coffee house uh, with plays unless he sold liquor. And he didn't want to sell liquor. He didn't want a part of that world. He just wanted to be a coffee house. So they were giving him summonses on a weekly basis, hundreds of dollars. Uh, and the Chino didn't have, you know, the Chino sold sandwiches and coffee, right? So there was the financial problem. There was the, the spiritual problem of being having one of your greatest creations stolen from you. Um, and his lover was accidentally electrocuted. So all of that was going on in 1967. Everyone was trying to help get him out of that darkness and it wasn't happening. Uh, people were coming in with drugs, which added fire to the uh, fuel to the fire. Glittered the Cafe Chino matches with green glitter for St. Patrick's Day. Put them up on a shelf so they were hidden away until the actual day. Came into the cafe one night and asked Joe to reach this jug that was up on a top shelf for me. Uh, and he said, what was in it? And I said, it's a surprise for St. Patrick's Day. And he looked at it, and I had all the Chino matches covered with glitter. And the, the Chino name was covered up with glitter. Mm -hmm. And whatever that meant to him, it was bad. And he threw the matches across the room. With, you know, he was not in his normal mind, right? Uh, but it broke my heart because I saw how upset he was and I left and I never went back for days and um, that was my last time seeing him um, the next thing I found out was that he had committed suicide he had, he had attempted suicide and um, that was on a I want to say Friday night, but I don't know. I had to look at my dates. I know he died, I think, on a Sunday. I was staying at a hotel. I was living at a hotel at that time. Um, and I remember, and every, people were giving blood. There were like hundreds of people were giving blood. They, the hospital said it was the most blood given since the Second World War. Because mm -hmm. so many people um, had offered to do that. He was in really bad shape physically. So I called the St. Vincent's from my hotel room phone and said, can I come in and give blood? And the woman at the other end of the phone said, he won't need it anymore, honey, or he won't need it anymore. And I thought that was good. And she said, he passed away. And I didn't put the phone on the hook. I remember that. I remember just laying the phone dangle. I got in a cab and went down to the cafe. And that was around... I want to say around 5 o'clock was like late in the afternoon, early evening, and they didn't know yet at the cafe that he had passed away because he was supposedly doing well. So I got there, um, and I saw Bob Patrick on the corner, and I said Joe had died, and he said no. He said he's doing fine. And he, r he ran ahead of me down that one block to the cafe. 
and I guess he phoned St. Vincent's. I don't know, but that was how I found out that he had passed away. So those are my last two memories, and neither one of them are very good. They're sad. Yeah. What would you want future generations to know about, about Joe the most? That he was such a giving person in the best sense of that word. He provided a home for a whole generation of people. He provided a home for playwrights, especially. He provided a home for people who just wanted to come in and see a show and have a cup of coffee. He, he just made everyone feel like they belonged there. And he gave you, if you wanted to do a play, if you wanted to work on a play, if you wanted to do something, if you wanted to help out, he gave you that freedom to do that. It was, an, it was a place for enormous creative freedom. And he gave his life, eventually, is what he did. You know, he gave everything, including his life. That's why I say, like, if someone is really wants to research the cafe, they've got to go up to the archives and do it chronologically because it started with, what well, he ran away from home. It's like it's such a long story, but <laughs> he ran away from home when he was 16, came to New York, and what he wanted to do was have a little place, have a little cafe where people could hang their artwork because he knew some artists. Worked for 10 years, got enough money to rent the place on Cornelia Street, and that was how it began, with artists hanging their work. And the deal was, you hang the work and you take it down. He didn't want to have anything to do with that. You know, see, the artist had a free space. And then he had po uh, poetry readings. And then it evolved from there, about a year later, to staged readings. So it's like you can see how it evolved, you know. And it got really big in 1966, 65, because people were really strong playwrights were, were their work was being performed there and those same playwrights were being recognized by the bigger newspapers so people were becoming aware of the important work that was being done at this little coffee house you know so it all it evolved slowly and then quickly 65 66 67 were really big years so yeah if if I were telling someone what to, how to research Joe, I would say go and look at that 10-year period and how someone who ran away from home at the age of 16 changed the world. <laughs> you know? And speaking yeah. of those playwrights, we were talking earlier about Sam Shepard, so I just wondered if you wanted to share any of your Sam memories. Yeah. Sam, I, I really didn't know. Oh, I mean, okay. I know who he was, and I saw him in the cafe, but I never worked with him. But I do have a Sam Shepard story from yesterday. I was listening to um, a talk radio show, the Mark Simone Show. I'll put in a plug for Mark. Not that he, <laughs> not that he needs my plug. Uh, but he was interviewing a, a theater columnist named Roger Friedman. And, about, and Sam had just passed away Wednesday, and they were talking about how the lights on Broadway had dimmed for Sam. And Roger said it was ironic because of all the playwrights on Broadway, Sam shunned the big lights. He said he was more comfortable at the Cafe Chino and Cafe La Mama. And I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, how many years later, you know, 50 years later, this theater columnist is saying that the Cafe Chino mattered more to Sam Shepard than Broadway. I'm like, it made my day, you know. <laughs> I thought that was... It just, it validated the importance of the cafe, you know, and uh, to Sam Shepard. That's beautiful. Thank you so yeah. much for doing this again. Oh, you're very welcome. 
Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments, or opinions that are different from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum, Maggie Dominic at Maggie Dominic, and I am at Jose Solis Mayen. If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximuisms. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Thank you. Theatrical Media.